0: The following program is brought to you by the team of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We've been producing this radio internet program for the last 17 years, and we also produce books, one of which was Psychedelic Medicine, which many of you have seen. The most recent one is called Psychedelic Wisdom. In Psychedelic Wisdom, we offer you 1,500 years of stories of prominent psychotherapists who are outing themselves and talking about their decades of subrosa experimentation with psychedelic substances. Coming soon will be Sex Unveiled, followed by Grateful Death, Psychedelics at the End of Life. In addition, a fifth book is called Psychedelic Psychotherapy. I refer you to all of them. If you want to know more about our team and what we're doing, or if you'd like to hear archives of our program, please go to the website Mind, Body, Health and Politics. And now for the program. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly, tribal animals. We like to hang out together. We like to be together. We like to do things together. And we're basically nice to one another. When we know each other by name or at least by face, we tend to be quite collaborative and cooperative. However, we must also acknowledge that a very small percentage of us are greedy, avaricious, dangerous predators. And if these people are allowed to take control of the rest of us, and the rest of us is over 95 percent, but if we allow them to take control, they would have us once again be subjects rather than citizens. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics is Andrew Penn, a psychiatric nurse with the University of California in San Francisco. Welcome, Andrew.
1: Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. So today we want to talk about your work at UCSF particularly in the area of psychedelic research and the use of psychedelics in treatment. Let's start out with the research. Please share with us what's going on at UCSF that you're involved with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So I'm trained as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, uh, trained at UCSF, and I'm now currently a clinical professor there at UCSF in the same program that I trained in. And part of my role in that faculty appointment is that I work Uh, with the Translational Research Program in Psychedelics, the Tripper Lab, which is run by Dr. Josh Woolley. And we have been part of a number of different research projects. Uh, We worked on the MDMA-assisted therapy uh, protocol for PTSD. It was sponsored by MAPS. And then we were also a phase two research site for uh, a study of psilocybin-assisted therapy for major depression. And we're currently running... Uh, A couple of different trials, uh, most notably one on uh, people with depression and comorbid Parkinson's disease. And we'll soon be starting a study looking at people with bipolar 2 depression and a treatment with psilocybin-assisted therapy. So in that uh, research capacity, I was the the co-principal investigator for the major depression study, I've been a medical monitor for all of these studies and I've also I've been a study therapist uh, with a number of our subjects through the the different studies over the years. So I've worn a lot of different hats as one does in research, uh, and it's been really interesting to sort of have a front row seat at this uh, at this ongoing research uh, project that's happening really now all over the world.
0: What can you tell us if we take those substances that you just referred to, one at a time. Can you share some research information about each of them? Starting, for example, with psilocybin. Have you completed some research on psilocybin and depression, or psilocybin and other diagnostic categories?
1: Yeah, so the study that we did, that's now, uh, that's the, the, the data's now been gathered, it needs to be analyzed and published. It was a multi-site trial sponsored by the USONA Institute which is one of the two uh, major enterprises developing psilocybin for depression. And they're based here in the U.S. They're a a nonprofit organization uh, and they're working towards uh, developing psilocybin as a treatment, as a possible treatment for, for depression and so we uh we were one of i believe eight sites around the country that were working on that study and we ran you know, a, a portion of the the total number of of subjects that will be reported on in that in that treatment so what happens in those studies is uh that the general outline uh, frame is is similar in that there are several sessions of non-drug preparatory psychotherapy that happens in the days leading up to the dosing session um, some to adapt to the uh, challenges of the pandemic. We did some of these on Zoom and the last one before the dosing day was actually done in person in our, in our study room. So the subject could try out the couch and try out the headphones and we could show them where the bathroom was and kind of go through our procedures. But we spend those hours really getting to know... The, in this case, it was two therapists, and uh, those two therapists getting to know the subject and and vice versa, and so that that we would know what might come up during that dosing session, and so that the person would feel safe and well-contained uh, during the time that they're under the drug. And then they would come in for the dosing day. Uh, our study was a, a double-blinded placebo-controlled trial, and so we did not know if they were going to get active drug or they were going to get the placebo. And we would uh, administer the uh, the same two therapists who did the preparatory therapy would administer the drug, you know, usually around 9 a.m. And we would be there for uh, the agreement was that we would uh, we would be there for the six or seven hours of the drug effects. Um, usually by six hours, it's starting to wear off, or has, has actually worn off altogether. Uh, and then in that particular study, um, we would then the next day start doing. What we call integration therapy, which is where we talk about the experience of the day before. Uh, we really try and make sense out of what happened, what was talked about, what was felt. Um, a lot of times people have very personally significant uh, experiences under the drug, and there's a lot to talk about afterwards. And so we try and make sense out of that. And we look for we look for opportunities to implement those learnings into maybe behavioral change or attitudinal change uh, going forward. And so in that particular study, it was a single dose. So we did not re-dose. Uh, we did not do a second dose. Um, some of the studies that we're doing now are, um, they, for example, the Parkinson study, uh, the first dose is a low dose of psilocybin, and then the second dose is a, a higher dose of psilocybin. And Let's be a little more ability. specific if sure. you
0: can Andrew. Yep. In the in the first study with depression. Uh-huh. Uh, it was double blind so some of the subjects got a placebo some got the psilocybin. That's the right. ones who got the psilocybin how much what was the size of the dose please?
1: So the the standard dose in a, in most studies has become 25 milligrams of synthetic psilocybin. So you got to remember, we're not using ground-up mushrooms in any of these studies because the FDA would not allow that. So we're using a synthesized psilocybin. So, so 25 milligrams is is pretty commonly considered a a high dose of psilocybin. Could you could
0: you equate that to people who are grinding up mushrooms and weighing it so they would know?
1: It's quite variable because, as you know, psilocybin is a is a uh, genus that has a lot of different species, and sort of like in the same way that that different strains of cannabis have varying degrees of THC and CBD and the other cannabinoids, there is uh, considerable variance in how much psilocybin is in is in, in a uh, in an actual fungal uh, you know, fruiting body of the, the mushroom. So you know, I I think you know, sort of, it's roughly somewhere around uh, three to four grams. Of dried mushrooms. I mean, that's are a very we saying ballpark.
0: that people are we? Andrew, are we saying that people who are listening to this, who want to give themselves the same dose that you, you people used at UCSF, but they don't have access to the special psilocybin that you had created by a special chemist, and they're going to use mushrooms? Is it sort of caveat emptor? They better be careful. Or would you say if they ground it up? I mean, what you're saying is there are so many different kinds of psilocybin mushrooms, there could be a wide variation, which sounds like, I mean, how wide is it? So and how cautious should do we want people to be if they, say, ground up whatever mushrooms they had that were psilocybin and took mm, four grams, would they be in the ballpark or might they be in a danger zone of taking too much? Well,
1: I mean, the, that's a difficult a, question to answer. It's a tough question, uh, isn't and it? It's yeah. al- and it's also that that you know, within the actual, uh, even within a single mushroom, uh, uh, different portions of the mushroom can have different a uh, different uh, concentrations of psilocybin so the cap may have more than the stem for example or the mushroom Mm -hmm. next to it may have more than the other so it's so there's a lot of variability there and it's it's also important to point out too that it's it's not just the drug that is doing the work so it's really it's a combination of drug plus psychotherapy that is is what we're studying here and so Mm -hmm. so while somebody certainly could try and attempt this at home um I mean, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily endorse that, and I I wouldn't necessarily expect to have the same outcomes because typically when people are doing this in that kind of rec- more you know shall we say recreational setting, they're not working with two therapists, they're not uh, they're not necessarily setting out with the intention to work on some of the the issues that may that our subjects are looking at. So our our subjects specifically had to. Uh, be, they had to have a diagnosis of depression uh, of a certain severity, and without certain, without particular comorbidities, for example, like they couldn't have uncontrolled hypertension or heart disease, and um, and so so it's a different different context. The reason
0: I'm asking these questions is as you and I both know, there are now hundreds, if not thousands, of what are being referred to as guides who are guiding people on psilocybin journeys all around the United States, and in fact, around the world. And we, we all know that. Sure. And we also know that they're using protocols that are very similar to the one you described and very similar to the one that Roland Griffiths originally used at the Johns Hopkins experiment because the word is out. In fact, I had Roland on this very program many years ago when he first did the, the, uh, that experiment. So we have these people uh, doing this work, and therefore, it's incumbent upon us to be as open and uh, as possible about what we know in order to be as careful or to let the word go out to these people who are doing this about the care they need to take. Because from what you're saying right now, these guides could be using uh, mushrooms and delivering what they think is a particular dosage, and it may not really be that dosage.
1: That's right. That's right and and, that's- and and we don't know if it, it you know we we don't know if we'll get the same results if you take these same protocols in a different setting with people that have different backgrounds and different training that that really hasn't been studied so right. it it's 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 a reasonable supposition that it might have the same effects, but we don't know i mean there's a lot of things we're we're really engaging in a lot of rampant speculation in this space right now. And mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of uh, sort of implying that things will will work in the same way and and honestly we just don't know if that's the case it may well be but we don't know and so I I think that remains sort of uncharted uh, uncharted territory and you know the dose and this and and in the case of botanical mushrooms the species of solasba that are being used that's just one variable that's that's different than what we're doing in the studies so the, the i mean there's there's arguably dozens of other variables that 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 would be different than what we're doing in the studies and so so to say well you know taking mushrooms at hopkins reduce people's depression end of story that really doesn't flesh out the the nuance here and it and and I don't think you can necessarily make that leap, uh, without mm-hmm. more careful study.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, w- w- have you had time to follow up your subjects w- uh, uh, after the uh, protocol was
1: administered? Yeah, so so there is longer term data that's being gathered by the sponsoring organization, um, USONA. but no, that that has not been published yet. And in fact, the 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 study our study has not yet been published it's in it's in preparation right now
0: so we don't know yet whether the depression was alleviated over a period of time as a result of that particular protocol but we're going to find out more when the data is analyzed
1: that's the goal yep
0: that's the goal and suppose someone or people are listening to this and they would like to apply to be subjects at one of your experiments how might
1: they go about doing that andrew yeah. So our, the website for our lab is psychedelics.ucsf.edu. So pretty easy to remember. Um, but I would, I would refer people to clinicaltrials.gov, which is really the, the the best way to find clinical studies on any particular indication. It's, it's a fairly simple website to use. It's uh, maintained by the National Institutes of Health. And you would go in there and, and Put in the treatment being psilocybin and the condition, for example, being depression. And there's also studies of psilocybin in other disease states. And then you could see where the studies are being done. You can usually see uh, a very basic inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, you know, for example, some of these studies, you need to be living within a certain geographic geographic radius of the of the, uh, study site. And that's, uh, for sort of practical reasons of many of these studies have multiple visits that need to be, uh, need to be done. And so having people that live 500 miles away, isn't very practical, for example, but that website will, uh, will list all the studies going on actually internationally if they're registered with uh, national institutes of health and it makes it much easier to find these studies, but you can you can filter by you know, studies that are currently enrolling or studies that are uh, will be enrolling soon. You know, there's there's different ways of filtering the data, but ClinicalTrials.gov is a very user friendly uh, website.
0: ClinicalTrials.gov, everybody. Mm-hmm. ClinicalTrials.gov. That sounds like a very important inf- piece of information. Thank you for that. Your research would be listed. In yes. clinicaltrials dot, dot gov. Yeah. Correct? Yes. So if somebody in the Bay Area, because a lot of our listeners are in the Greater Bay Area, wanted to apply to your program, they would go to clinicaltrials.gov and then they could do use the filters in order to get to the UCSF program.
1: That's right. And there's also studies going on at Stanford. There will be a study happening at Berkeley soon. Um so there are there are other sites in the Bay Area. Um but this is a way of, of finding out if, if one would at least on, at, at first pass qualify for, for the study. Um, and then usually there is uh, a way of contacting the, the research coordinator to, uh, to take the next steps for enrolling in clinical trials.
0: Now, Andrew, San Francisco has recently passed a law, as I understand it, legitimizing uh, psychedelics that are grown that come from the ground do I have that right or do you know much about that
1: um, I do believe there was a resolution passed by the board of Supervisors uh, decriminalizing certain uh, certain psychoactive plants yes I, I'm not I'm not conversant on all the details of that that law but it it seems to be part of a larger a decriminalization movement that we're seeing, and you know we saw that in Oakland uh, we saw that in Denver and now uh Colorado has recently passed a law um, similar to Oregon's creating a pathway for uh supervised psilocybin use uh like they have like they're currently working on. Uh, in Oregon.
0: Do you think uh, the fact that UCSF is in San Francisco and San Francisco passed this resolution, might that have a positive effect on your ability to do research or are they independent factors?
1: Yeah, they're independent of each other. Those are really um, two kind of related but separate phenomenon. So our our research is done um, under, um, you know, so we have a, a schedule one license to be able to work with these substances because psilocybin, uh, you know still remains a, a schedule 1 substance under the federal controlled substance act and so in order to work with that in a research capacity uh you have to have special uh dispensation from the DEA to do that and you know these decriminalization laws are Really, sort of saying um, to the local municipality, or in the case of Oregon, the whole state, that we're going to uh, disregard the federal statutes on this, and you know it's sort of similar to how cannabis rolled out, you know, 25, almost 30 years ago. Now, with with um, Prop 215 in California. You know, I mean, people, it's it's easy to forget that, you know, with with 35 plus states now with with some level of, of legalized cannabis, that cannabis still remains illegal under federal law. It's still a schedule one substance, you know, whether or not that makes sense or not is a totally different conversation. But the fact of the matter is that it is still a scheduled substance. And the feds since really since Clinton's time have sort of opted not to enforce that law. Um, but it does still remain a schedule one substance and you know if we remember from our high school physics class civics class not physics civics <laughs> class you know that 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 federal law does trump um, state law in these cases but the feds have to enforce it um, so these these measures are somewhat symbolic I mean I really think they they reflect you know a greater uh, interest in uh, decriminalizing, uh, personal use of substances, uh, it it does create sort of murky areas with regards to commerce. Um, I recently saw up in Oregon somebody has opened up a a mushroom dispensary, um, which is which is specific, specifically in that law was was uh, was not part of it. So they were saying, you know, we don't want to create a sort of cannabis dispensary type model. We want to have these supervised. Uh, sites where people can have this experience under under guidance. And this wasn't really intended just to have people go out to mushroom shops and buy mushrooms. I mean, I want to be clear that I am no fan of, of prohibitionist drug policy. I don't think it works. Um, I think we have plenty of history to show that it, it, it doesn't work. Um but there are a lot of different streams that are kind of in parallel to each other within psychedelics. So there's the clinical research uh, end of things, which I'm deeply involved in. And then there are all these sort of cultural um, paradigm shifts that are happening. And decriminalization is one of those, but they are they don't really... Um, they are somewhat separate from each other.
0: Do you know anything about the nasal spray of uh, psilocybin that one of the companies has manufactured and is uh, selling?
1: I'm not familiar with a nasal spray. No, we we were doing some some work with a company called Filament that is has created a uh, has extracted psilocybin from from the uh, fungal matter and is is developed a product that is a sublingual Administration of psilocin. I'm not familiar with the nasal spray. I mean, there's a number of different um, attempts at, at, at creating different delivery Mechanisms of this drug um for for various different reasons I mean uh, you know one of one of the things that there is considerable variance in is how quickly people absorb uh, psilocybin, for example, some people will you know and it also depends on how much food is in your stomach and such, but there is some variance in what we call the pharmacokinetics of of the drug, and so some of these products may be an attempt to uh sort of make a more reliably deliverable product um, mm-hmm. so that you know. You can reasonably say how quickly this is going to last and how long it will, uh, mm-hmm. how long before it takes effect. Um, mm-hmm. There's also a lot of interest because it, so one of the one of the possible challenges with future psychedelic therapy is the amount of time that it takes. And so, for example, our study session is really an all-day session. I mean, the person will, ing- you know, they get there at say 8 a.m. We get them settled, we get their vitals. Uh, we go down to the pharmacy, we get the drug, they take it, say, 9.15. They're going to be under that drug probably until 3 or 4 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start winding up around 5. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's shorter than LSD, um, but it's still a long day. And mm-hmm. so things like ketamine you know, are much shorter acting. Ketamine lasts for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Other drugs like 5 methoxy uh, dimethyltryptamine, 5 MEO DMT, you know, last even, even less time than that, um, can last 15, 20 minutes. So there's there's interest in looking at other compounds that maybe don't uh, take as long uh, to have an effect because, just from a healthcare economic standpoint, that that's a lot of uh, therapist time spent uh, for, for that return. I, I mean, I think it's time well spent but it is, it is is time-consuming.
0: Well, it is, and one of the things that concerns me about your research and about Roland Griffith's research and some of the other research that I've encountered on psilocybin as well as LSD is so often there are two therapists involved, and that's setting a kind of precedent which is going to be unrealistic in the real world because only the very wealthy will be able to hire two therapists for six to eight hours, so it won 't be available to probably ninety nine percent of the public, so I agree with what you 're saying other other uh, substances and other tactics are going to have to be involved be- You mentioned uh, physiology, so before we go on to the next one of your next research projects, tell us about the physiological effects. Of the subjects who received the actual uh, uh, psychedelic medicine, tell us about their heart rate, their their uh, blood pressure, and what other measurements you took.
1: Yeah, so we're we're mostly uh, just measuring blood pressure and heart rate. Um, Generally, psilocybin doesn't cause significant temperature increases, so that hasn't typically been an issue. But um, it it is known that psilocybin is what we call a presser in that it it, it can cause blood pressure to increase and it causes heart rate to increase. Um, Other physiologic effects. Uh, nausea is not uncommon, especially with drug onset. Um, sometimes some unsteadiness on the feet, you know, we make sure that people are accompanied when they go to the bathroom so that they don't fall, um, uh, sensitivity to to light and sound sometimes people get cold easily um those are some of the physiologic effects that we see a lot of, but mostly we're making sure that that the subjects that we're running have normal blood pressure to begin with and we we do have uh what we call rescue medications for Extremely elevated blood pressure, which we have not needed to use. Um, so we have that on, we have that on hand and protocols to use that if we needed to. But but in people that are have normal cardiovascular health, um, it really hasn't been an issue that we've had to intervene with.
0: But uh, what in terms of heart rate increase? I mean, have you seen tachycardia, mm-hmm. or is it you're talk, I mean, like over a hundred? Yeah, sure. Or-
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, not not severe tachycardia. I mean, I mean really we're not seeing heart rate and blood pressure changes that would be that much greater than say if somebody was exercising. Uh, robustly, you know, I mean of course, you see tachycardia and, and um, in, in increased blood pressure when you're exercising. So you know, and people that have um, that have that cardiac reserve and have have that are physiologically stable, then it's really not much of an issue. But that's why we also generally screen out people that have um, hypertension or heart disease uh, because you know in, in research studies, there's a long list of things that we exclude people for and for many reasons it's it has to do with safety in other situations that has to do with the fidelity of the data you know so for example we uh, generally require people to come off of antidepressants that they're on uh when they're entering our studies. And the reason for that is is uh, twofold. One is that certain antidepressants uh, do seem to attenuate the effects of psilocybin. And the other is is the more around the fidelity of the data. So if we um, if somebody gets better after a psilocybin treatment and they're also on an antidepressant, it's difficult to know where to attribute that that change. Was it because of the antidepressant or was it because of the psilocybin? So in order to not have that problem, we we ask people to come off of the medications that they're on, um, and we do that in a in a gradual way um, before in the, the weeks leading up to the, the dosing. That's
0: a very important piece of information. And what kind of uh, medicine do you have on board in case their blood pressure goes outside of the parameters that you find acceptable?
1: Uh, we have nitroglycerin, we have clonidine, we have labetalol. Mm-hmm. And for increased heart rate? Labetalol. It's a beta blocker. L- labetalol, uh-huh. But we again, we, we've we not needed to administer any of those. I mean, the, the cardiovascular effects are, are quite predictable for the most part. You, know, you really see them sort of tracking um, drug intensity. Um, they, they begin to happen within about an hour of ingestion and, and usually sort of plateau and peak at about the three-hour mark, which for most people is sort of peak subjective effects of the drug as well. So they seem to track serum levels.
0: Well, it sounds like... If if the levels they're, they're going to with their heart rate and their blood pressure are similar to what you'd get with uh, aerobic exercise, uh, that's within reason and outside of a danger zone. Shall we go on to uh, a study on another uh, psychedelic substance that you're involved with or are familiar with at UCSF?
1: Sure. Okay, you pick one this time. Well, I can I can talk a little bit about uh, the MDMA for PTSD study that we were. Please, part that would of. be great. Yeah, so this is a fairly well known study, probably to a lot of your your listeners. This is the the large study that's um, uh, a- approaching completion. Uh, at last, after many years of many, many years of work, um, that's sponsored by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and this is the study that's looking at um, a protocol of three doses of MDMA-assisted therapy delivered um, about, you know, roughly sort of four to six weeks apart. Um, over so the there's a there's a number of non-drug sessions that happen before and between and after. The MDMA sessions, uh, and this the the target condition here is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So our lab was part of so f- um, the study is wrapping up what is known as a phase three study. So for people that aren't familiar with drug development, there's really three phases to it. Phase one is is very basic uh, safety and sort of dose finding uh, done with a very small number of subjects. Uh, Phase two is sort of proof of concept. So this is where you're looking to see if it actually treats a clinical condition in a smaller number of subjects, and you're looking to see if it can be done safely or at least to begin to identify what the known risks are. And then phase three is typically, um, it's usually two large studies uh, with often several hundred subjects Uh, in that study. And the, the idea there is to see if that proof of concept holds with a more diverse and larger population. So that's really an attempt to sort of approximate how well it might work in in a larger clinical population. So phase three was, in the MAP study was broken up into two halves. There was a first half and a second half. I worked on the tail end of the first half, which wrapped up just, just as COVID was getting started. Um, and so it sort of delayed the overall progress of the study. That, that work is now being done um, at UCSF by Jenny Mitchell uh, in her lab, and she's... Um, She's just she's one of many sites in that multi-site trial. That's another thing in phase three. Phase three is often um, done as a multi-site trial, and and the reason why you do that is um, it, it that way you can see if the findings are replicable when different clinicians are delivering the treatment because if it just turns out well you get these results because you have an amazing therapist at this one site <laughs> you want to see do you still get the same results when you have variability in right. the and the subject and the sort of mm-hmm. the um, the clinicians that are involved in giving it so phase 3 phase 3 studies are often multi-site to account for that and uh UCSF had one of those sites and they're I believe they've run their last subjects, so that uh, and I believe the last subjects for that study are are finished up now. So they'll go into uh, data analysis and, and hopefully uh, publication of that very soon. And and that will also involve if the findings are positive uh, that there will be a submission to the FDA for uh, what's called a new drug uh, application. So that would be the mechanism by which this would be approved by the FDA for uh, for treatment by clinicians.
0: Would you be willing to venture a guess uh, regarding amount of time before that submission to the FDA might realistically take place, given that there are so many sites that are doing the research simultaneously?
1: Yeah, I believe all the sites have wrapped up there. Uh, if, if if they've not finished running their subjects, they will be very close to it. I, my understanding was before the end of the year that those that those sites would be done running the subjects and that that, that data would go into analysis, um, if not now, uh, within the first month or two of the new year. And the intention, my understanding, for MAPS is to submit that data to the FDA in the beginning of 2023 with hopes of, um, if it's positive, that there would be... Uh, some form of FDA approval by uh, the middle or end of 2023. So it could very well be right around the corner. I mean, it's important to put a to put a fine point on that. That there's a lot of people that sort of talk about th- that this is going to legalize MDMA, and and it that's not really true. I mean, what it will do is it, it will lead to a rescheduling of MDMA off of Schedule One because it will be shown to have a a medical use. And Schedule One, by definition, is has no medical use and has a high potential for misuse. Um, but it would only be legal for use under very specific circumstances and very uh, in very particular places. So, um, possession of of illicit MDMA would still be illegal. Um, and and so it's it's there's there's a lot of sort of I would just call it unclear reporting in this space, and and a lot of hype and. Um, one of the things that I hear of a lot is that this will legalize MDMA, and and that is true in a very specific way, but not not for general public consumption.
0: I think there's a belief out there that if MDMA is changed from Schedule One to Schedule Two, physicians will be able to prescribe it. Is that accurate?
1: No, um, no more so than um, than being able to prescribe, say, a surgical anesthetic. So you know if you've had a colonoscopy for example you probably had a drug called versed midazolam it's a it's a benzodiazepine it's used in procedures all the time because it eliminates you know it sort of relaxes you and eliminates any memory of the occasion um, which for a colonoscopy I've had it. which for a colonoscopy is probably something you want it's a it's a i believe it's a schedule 3 drug so it's totally prescribable but it's never something you would go and pick up at Walgreens so it's used Prescribed in a very particular specific setting, and that'll be the case for MDMA as well. If if it if it is approved, it will be uh, in a very specific setting, and there'll be another layer of regulation on it. Something called a REMS program, which is a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy, which the FDA requires for drugs that. Um, that are more complicated or more risky to use. So for example, um, a drug that some of your listeners might be familiar with suboxone, which is a treatment uh, in addiction medicine for opiate use disorder um, is a prescribable drug, but it requires uh, other uh, there are other regulations in addition to it being um, a prescription drug. So uh, the number of patients that you can treat, for example, the kind of training you have to have to prescribe it, um for some rems is there's a uh, there's a rems for s uh which is the nasal spray antidepressant form of um or the enantomer of ketamine um that has that says that the the patient has to be kept in clinic for two hours after the delivery of the drug. And this is never to be a take-home drug. So there's very clear kind of guidance around how the drug is used. So, you know, it needs to be made clear that while this will be a great advance for the treatment of PTSD to have MDMA available, if it if it continues to show the same effects that we saw in phase two and in early phase three, that this doesn't make it legal for general use, um, And that may come as a disappointment to some people.
0: I imagine so. Will it be as easily available as ketamine?
1: Uh, That remains to be seen. You know, I think there's a number of things that we don't really know. You know, ketamine is widely used. So, you know, something a lot of people are not aware of is that while ketamine absolutely has benefit as a rapid acting antidepressant, um, it actually doesn't have an FDA indication for that. Mm -hmm. Um, It was originally an anesthetic um, that Mm -hmm. was found to have antidepressant effects about 20, 22 years ago. Um, And so it's widely used in what's known as an off-label kind of way. So when you use a drug off-label, you're using it for a condition that is other than what the FDA has indicated it's used for. And that's okay to do in clinical medicine if if that's a common practice. Um, So for example, in psychiatry, we use an older antidepressant called trazodone for sleep all the time for sleep, but that's not what its FDA indication is. Is it's it's labeled as an antidepressant, but it it happens to make people quite drowsy at low doses, so it's commonly used off label for sleep. Um, if uh, off label use is 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 you have to be. Careful with off-label use, um, because you know I, I imagine there's going to be a lot of off-label MDMA prescribed um, in if if we do get into a situation where uh, it is legal to use and 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 you know there's pros and cons to that. I mean, it, off-label use is one of the ways that we find other uses for drugs, but if it's if it's used if if it's used as sort of a pretext just to give people MDMA. Um for conditions that have not been studied, we don't know what the risks of that are so you know part of part of doing f d a type trials is to be able to begin to identify the risks of of a drug and you know we know a lot about the risks of m d m a because organizations like the National Institute on Drug Abuse sunk millions of dollars into studying the potential risks of it, you know some sometimes with good science, sometimes with bad. Um, so we have some awareness of what the risks of MDMA are, but we don't necessarily know how effective it is for treatments, for conditions for which it hasn't yet been studied. You know, So maybe it helps with eating disorders, but we don't know because mm-hmm. those studies are only just now being done. Um, it's a reasonable supposition, but until you have the data, you can't say that it works. You got to prove well, it.
0: But what we do know from before it got scheduled, and I know as a, as a clinician, is that it's it's very helpful in couples psychotherapy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, There's a great history of that. You know, the pre-prohibition use with you know Leo Zeff and 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 colleagues. That he, he was a good friend of mine. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think these are all uh, yeah, these are all things that need to be studied and should yes. be studied, and hopefully the rescheduling of the drug will make it easier to do those studies. But I I do take a a, a position of reasonable caution. I think there's mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a lot of exuberance in the psychedelic space right now, which I, is understandable because. You know, a lot of these conditions for which we are seeing if these are viable treatments, we don't have good treatments for. You know we don't have great pharmacologic treatments for PTSD, for example. So I get why there's an impatience and there's an urgency. um and it's if we get going too fast and without really thinking this through, we really run the risk of imperiling the whole enterprise, you know, and this is where I get a little, a little testy with people that want to rush into this sort of headlong is that, you know, a lot of people, myself included, have spent a good chunk of their careers um, trying to get this to this point. And, you know, rushing into this kind of recklessly really runs the risk of, of feeling a backlash, And of having this be pulled off the market and rescheduled back to schedule one, Um, you know, because the other thing to remember is that FDA approval is really only just the starting point. Um, It's from that point, then we can figure out how this is used clinically, where this fits into existing treatment paradigms. And we start to also see Risks that were not yet identified in clinical trials. So, um, you know, for example, if there's a, if there's a side effect that only happens to one in five thousand people, you might not pick that up in a clinical trial of five hundred people, but you will when you give it to five million people uh, in the general population. And so, there may be risks that we don't yet fully understand. That we want to understand them, and we want to mitigate those risks. Um, and you know, some people for example, may need a lot more psychotherapy than we've been doing in the studies to date. You know, that may be fine for the average person, but somebody who has a lot more trauma or a lot more uh, issues around attachment, for example, complex PTSD may require a lot more care and treatment than somebody who has a more straightforward kind of PTSD.
0: Well, I'm with you on the uh, importance of caution. I'm also a person that's been waiting for over 50 years for uh, a, a research to be allowed, and it's been a very long wait, I can tell you. With regard to MDMA, um, I know that there have been there's evidence of uh, cardiovascular effects, but I also know that from anecdotal data, we've had tens of millions of people using this and we do not have an inordinate number of people going to emergency rooms as we have with fentanyl with cocaine, and with heroin and I would think that those tens of millions of people around the world who are using this would count for something in terms of when you say one in five thousand we 're talking about millions. Mm-hmm. And yet we do not see headlines of people dropping like flies from MDMA, whether it's even at raves where they're getting overheated and they're getting dehydrated. We've had a few problems, but it's really been quite negligible when you add the whole thing up around the planet
1: right and that and that that existing data around safety um, and what's been known from the the more NIDA um, funded studies in the past that were looking really more at the harm potential harms of the drug were some of the things that allowed it to get breakthrough status is that the that, that maps could make a case that there was a, a fairly large amount of safety data and that the risks um, you know, because MDMA like all drugs has has risks, has side effects. Um, you know, for example, uh hyponatremia, which is a, a a sudden drop of the sodium in your in your blood. Um, it can be quite dangerous. It can cause your brain to swell, you know, often when people die from MDMA toxicity, it has to do with hyponatremia leading to sudden brain swelling which causes a person to to die. Um, you know, that is a known risk of the drug. Um, it can be mitigated through various forms. You know, harm reduction folks talk about this a lot. You know, the old the old sort of story that you had to drink lots and lots of water on MDMA is actually dangerous because drinking lots and lots of water will flush the sodium out of your body and that that that's actually quite dangerous. So you do need to drink Fluids, but you don't need to drink excessive amounts of fluid. Um, you know, and that that a hot, sweaty basement rave might be a lot of fun, but it might not be the safest place to be taking a drug that causes uh, that that could cause electrolyte problems and and um, hyperthermia. So you know, it, your point is well taken. Um, and you know, and I also think that there's there's a lot of kind of uh, I mean, drugs all have side effects. Um, can you,
0: know, you tell and, us some of the negative effects on the cardiovascular system that your research with MDMA has offered us?
1: Yeah. I mean, similarly, we we monitored blood pressure and, and heart rate and temperature on these drugs. And and you do see with, with MDMA, similar to psilocybin, you do see some transient increases in, in blood pressure and heart rate. Um, you know, nothing like you would probably see if you were dancing in a in a hot nightclub. Um Temperature increases were fairly negligible from the study, the subjects that I saw that um, we'll see what the data says in, in aggregate. With all the subjects, but really, you know, there's a there is a known risk of of some increase in blood pressure and heart rate. So, you know, again, this might be the kind of thing where if you have normal cardiovascular health, you're fine. But if you have unstable hypertension or you you have heart disease, this may be contraindicated.
0: Did you have to take action to uh, mitigate the effect? of the MDMA uh, with regard to cardiovascular response, or was it similar to the psilocybin where there was an increase, but it was within reasonable parameters, and you did not need to administer additional medicines?
1: I I don't believe there was any need for any cardiovascular intervention in the the first half of phase three that was published. The second half hasn't been published yet. And in the first half, how many subjects... There was uh, 90 subjects in that study. Oh that's I believe.
0: A, okay. That's a decent end. This data has not yet been analyzed. You've made that clear to us, but we're going to be hearing about it in early 2023. Um, again, for those of you who might want to be who want, might want to participate in an MDMA study at UCSF, clinicaltrials.gov. I'm going to keep reminding you about that. That was a tremendous piece of information that Andrew has shared with us to make it easy for all of you who want to volunteer and be subjects in one of these studies. Um, Do we want to talk about another uh, research project while we still have time? Or is there something else you want to share with us about your life at UCSF while we still have some time?
1: Sure. Well, why don't we switch gears a little bit? So one of the things that I've done a lot of work, so I'm a nurse by training, I'm a Nurse practitioner, um, and uh, one of the the projects I've been part of is is starting an organization or co founding an organization called the Organization of Psychedelic and Entheogenic Nurses, um, and it, you know nursing has a has a has a very important role in psychedelic work for a number of different reasons, um, some of which are are sort of obvious and practical. You know this is a long day, um, and and so the idea of being with a patient for six or eight hours is is really not that unusual in nursing. You know, a, a typical ICU shift is eight to 12 hours. And, you know, you're with a patient who might be in an altered state of uh, consciousness due to an illness. So the idea of being with a patient for a long period of time and supporting them while they heal is a very familiar idea to nurses. And that, that nurses really center... Um, the phenomenon of care as much or more so than than cure. Um, if we happen to cure, that's great, um, but we can always uh, provide care for our patients. And, and it's really the quality of the care which probably has a significant determinant on the outcome that people get from these treatments. And so in these... Um, you, what i've I've done some writing uh, with uh, people such as Janice Phelps, who started the California Institute for Integral Studies a Certificate in Psychedelic Therapies and Research. Uh, she and I co-authored a paper with with uh, Jean Watson, who's a well-known theorist in the nursing space, about really creating that that container of or co-creating that that container of care with the patient um, so that the patient and the clinician both collaborate to really, Create this space that is going to be held uh, for for healing to occur during the psychedelic session, and um, and that's something that nurses are very familiar with. You know, I think nurses uh, provide care as sort of second nature, but you know, care is one of those things that's sort of like oxygen. You know, you really. You know when it's not there <laughs> you're ab- you're very aware of its absence um and sometimes its presence we just sort of take for granted but uh just to sort of underscore an earlier point about that it's not just about the drugs, it's really about this experience which which ultimately is probably what what makes it healing um and that 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 space of care can be held well or it can be held poorly. Or it could be considered unessential, and that's really my biggest concern. Is that that in as we move towards greater efficiency, you know, market forces tend to squeeze, or they tend to attempt to squeeze what appears to be inefficient out of any system in order to sort of maximize profit and maximize uh, market penetrance and such. And so, one of the things that I think will will probably go away as this becomes closer to commercially available um, is, is the two therapist model, which you know, may be okay. We don't know. We haven't studied it yet. You know Can can you do the same work with one therapist just as safely and just as effectively? We don't know. Um, and there's going to be other things that are probably going to, there's going to be a, an attempt to reduce the amount of care that is delivered during these sessions and really try and distill it down to as uh, the, the sort of cheapest, most efficient model as possible. And that, that's great from a standpoint of access, because as you point out, if this is only available to people that are inordinately wealthy, then that leaves a lot of people who need this treatment, who, who could benefit from this treatment, not available to get it. So we want to have it be as efficient as reasonably possible. But, but the minute we get to the point where we're losing either efficacy or safety, then we've gone too far. And you know we don't know where those lines really are right now because most of the treatments, the studies to date have been very kind of enriched environments where you've got two therapists, you've got a lot of time. Um, in the clinical world where there's going to be a lot of demand for this treatment, there may not be as many clinicians as we would like to have to deliver it. Uh, we're going to need to figure out ways to make this done more efficiently. And one of the things. That that I think nursing could really step into that is that we are the largest profession, healthcare profession in the United States. There's 3.8 million nurses in the United States, and what we're seeing during the pandemic—I mean, this was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic just underscored it—is that um, a lot of nurses are burnt out and they're thinking about leaving uh, the profession. And I think a lot of them would stay if they could change what they're doing. You know, I think most nurses got into nursing because they wanted to help people, they wanted to heal people, and they still want that. But they're discouraged by things like uh, electronic health records and the bureaucracy of hospitals and, and such. And so if we could even take 10% of that 3.8 million people, um, you'd have a huge workforce or even 1%. You would still have a huge workforce of people who really already have the innate skills that you need to be to be a psychedelic therapist. You know, you really you need to be present. You need to hold that space with equanimity. Um, you need to be present for whatever comes up. Um, and you also need to be able to think on your feet. You know, if an emergency happens, you need to be able to manage it. Um if if there's a physiologic problem, you need to be able to manage that. If there's a psychological problem, you need to be able to manage that. And nurses are good at all that stuff. I mean, we're really um, one of my colleagues, Wendy Marusic, says we are the uh, Swiss Army knives of of of, of healthcare. Um, we do a What's lot of things. What's the name of the
0: organization again? It's please. Open
1: Nurses. O P E N U R S E S dot org. Mm-hmm. Uh, the organization well, you,
0: also mentioned, you also mentioned psychedelic nurses another
1: yep. organ, was nope that's the same thing a, so the organization of psychedelic and entheogenic nurses or opennurses.org
0: opennurses.org have you discussed this concept that you're now sharing with me with Rick Doblin
1: oh yeah rick and i've talked good. about it
0: good yes because rick, you know he's looking at starting uh centers all around the united states and your nursing concept sounds like it would be ideal Because, you you know, you're right. We we know it. Two therapists. I mean, I learned this actually, Andrew, some 50 years ago, because I started a a clinic in San Francisco on Sacramento Street that was called the Gestalt Institute for Multiple Psychotherapy. Hmm. And what multiple psychotherapy meant was two therapists were in every session. It was something that I was trained uh, uh, for by a group in Atlanta called the Atlanta Psychiatric Clinic that was headed up by uh, Carl Whitaker and John Workington. Mm-hmm. Whitaker then went on to the University of Wisconsin Medical School and taught multiple therapy there. Well, it, multiple therapy was a wonderful uh, uh, method of therapy and it was very effective, mm-hmm. but it was it was it was totally impractical. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we did it for a couple of years, but we couldn't make a living because we was we, we couldn't charge people for two therapists in the room. Right. So we had to split the fee, and it was uh, you know it was just unrealistic. Though it was very effective. Ano- and, another
1: way we can probably increase efficiency in this is by doing this in groups too. And so uh, that's
0: my next step. Yeah, and so, I went so, I went on to become a group yeah, therapist yeah. As, for, for very much the same economic reasons to make it more affordable for people. And and group therapy is a very Effective uh, form of therapy,
1: it absolutely is, and 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 you know what's interesting about group therapy and psychedelics. So, uh, my friend and colleague Brian Anderson did some really interesting research a few years ago at UCSF, um, looking at long-term HIV survivors, and these were guys that had survived, you know, what is sometimes referred to as the plague years of the early '80s and '90s before protease inhibitors. Came along and really changed AIDS into a um, to a chronic illness instead of the sudden death sentence it was when it first showed up and and so these were guys that lost a lot of people in their lives you know up to anywhere between twenty to a hundred people they'd lost to the pandemic yes. and and so uh Brian and his team they did uh they did the preparatory psychotherapy as a group so small groups six six men two therapists they did the dosing in the same model that we 've been doing with the two therapists and one patient and then they came back and did the integration in a group again. And not only was this um, feasible and safe, but it, it also seemed, you know, this was a, a pilot study, this was a small study, but what it really also seemed to have was this effect of creating community among people that had often lost many people in their community. And this is something that we're really suffering from as a society in general. I mean, as you pointed out at the beginning of, of our discussion, that that disconnection, is really at the heart of a lot of what ails us, and you know, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, in this case, really underscored that because we spent uh, a lot of time away from our the people that we care about in our communities, and it it really it's 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 done a lot of damage. Um, you know, it was a necessary step for containing the virus, but it was definitely it had a it had a, a real problem of, of disconnecting us, and so. Uh, you know, Roz Watts in the UK has is, is really articulated a very beautiful uh, sort of concept around depression, that depression is, is really an illness of disconnection, that we're disconnected from others, we're disconnected from pleasure, we're disconnected from ourselves, and that that is where the suffering lies. And one of the things that's interesting about psychedelic experiences is that they often have this, they, they can create this experience of reunification, that people feel like they they are attached to something larger than themselves and you know perhaps getting ourselves out of the center of our own story which is something we all do you know, this is this is the the, the target of, of many a meditation practice is to reduce the the centrality of our ego and, and that our story and to connect to something that's bigger than us, um, whether that's other people or the natural world or purpose or God or whatever you want to call it, that that when it's not just the 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 little show about us that we so often get caught up in, then we we can feel connected to something. Bigger and more important, and and perhaps that experience of reconnection has the potential to be healing. You know, we don't fully know. I mean, these are all speculations, but um, I think that's but where it's a groups very come good,
0: in. It's a very good speculation, if I may say. Thank you, and
1: it's and, and it's that's where the groups good... may come into this. Is that that uh, uh, you know? And if you're going to have a big a big personal experience, it's really nice to have other people that have been through a similar experience to talk about it with. You know, That's right. We saw this in the VA with people that went to war that you know there's a certain understanding that if you've been in combat that you have that if you've never been in combat you probably don't have and so you can I think having people that go through these big experiences of psychedelics to have them be able to come back to that same circle and say Let's talk about what happened. Um, let's make sense yeah. out of this and let's do this together. Uh, maybe it's healing.
0: Because we really are friendly tribal animals and we do like hanging out with one another and sharing our lives and our stories. I think so. And I fully agree with you that when we get disconnected, whether the symptom is depression or some other symptom, something not good is going to happen, be it psychological or physiological. Yeah. We Alienation is destructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is is there anything going on at UCSF? This is we're sort of running out of time here, so I just want to ask this last question. Is there anything going on at UCSF with regard to the use of psychedelics with end of life transition?
1: There will be a study fairly soon um that uh, uh Brian Anderson who I mentioned earlier is going to be heading up um, in uh-huh. poly- along with uh, Charlie Grobe and uh, some other folks uh, well known in the psychedelic space, looking at a larger a larger study of um, of the, these modalities for treatment uh, with end of life. Um, because is, that, what's
0: his name? What, what Gordon a, a Bri-
1: Brian Anderson?
0: Brian Anderson. Yeah, and maybe you can connect me with him because. One of my next books that I'm in contract for already has to do with psychedelics at the end of life. And I'm looking for people who are doing research and I'm looking for people who have used psychedelics in end of life transition. It would be very helpful if you could uh, refer to me in that regard.
1: Sure, happy to. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, some of the published studies that were done at Hopkins and NYU back in 2016, know, really showed that there is a potential efficacy there. For end of life and and that is a, a tremendous need. Um, yes, and so so that is definitely something that warrants further further study.
0: Well, it's been a wonderful experience being with you, likewise. Andrew. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I really very much appreciate your considerate, thoughtful responses to my to my questions and to the whole field that you're researching. Uh, I, it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, let's do it again sometime in the future after you have some more data analyzed.
1: Yeah, I'd like to do that, Richard. That sounds good. Uh, and thank uh, come you. Up, all. Come up and see it, Wilbur.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, that would be great. If well, any time you're up there, give me let me know you're going to be there, and we'll connect.
1: Excellent. It's one of my That's favorite a- places on earth.
0: Oh, oh. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to hear it. You know, I, this is a whole aside, but you know, in the 1980s, I did chemical dependence treatment up there in the coke enders alcohol and drug program and i utilized group therapy uh, in every one of those sessions for a 10-year period and so much of what you said about disconnection applied to those people because the very connecting in that in those group therapy sessions was such a powerful healing force
1: yeah we heal we heal in community
0: we heal in community. And so for you community members who are listening and are part of our Mind, Body, Health, and Politics community, thank you for listening to today's program. And I look forward to your joining us again next time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is indeed worth fighting for. And it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.